and welcome to the Sustainable Business Cover podcast for a special episode to mark Fashion Revolution Week 2021. Coming up on today's episode, the founders of rental platform Her Collective and small ethical brand Birdsong London outline the challenges and opportunities for innovative fashion business models against the backdrop of COVID-19. Vivo Barefoot's co-founder and CEO Galahad Clark discusses how consumer well-being and environmental sustainability interact in the shoe sector. And Third Minds founder Steve Hamill explores how the shoe sector's waste mounting can be tackled. A very warm welcome to today's edition of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. I'm Edie's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm delighted to be hosting this themed edition for Fashion Revolution Week. Um, If you know me in real life or you've just been reading Edie for a while, you'll know that sustainable fashion is a passion of mine and that Fashion Revolution Week is an annual fixture in my personal calendar. But I know that won't be the case for everyone listening. So firstly, thanks for joining if you're just starting on your sustainable fashion journey. And secondly, I think it's worth recapping what Fashion Revolution Week is all about. This event, held by Fashion Revolution, was first held after the organisation was formed in 2013. The formation was a direct response to the Rana Plaza collapse disaster in Bangladesh. This tragedy saw more than 1,300 people killed and a further 2,500 injured, most of whom were garment workers. Brands which were subsequently found to be sourcing from the collapsed factory complex include Primark, Walmart and J.C. Penney. Fashion Revolution Week therefore unites consumers to ask a simple question of brands, who made my clothes? And this year specifically, who made my fabric as well? This kind of campaign has proven massively successful. Last year's Pay Up Fashion campaign moved high street names including Primark and Walmart again, as well as the likes of Gap and Nike to pay for completed and in-process orders regardless of shipping disruptions and retail store closures caused by COVID-19. Yet, full supply chain transparency remains a lofty goal, rather than a reality for most big-name fashion brands. And beyond worker rights issues and transparency, the fashion industry has also been linked to significant levels of emissions, water pollution and waste. Moreover, whilst the sustainable fashion conversation is growing, Coverage is often dictated by the same voices, and I mean big voices. So from the high street, we often hear from H&M, and from luxury, we often hear from Stella McCartney. So for this episode, I've decided to schedule calls with four SMEs that are redefining sustainability, challenging greenwashing and innovating business models. First up, we're going to play a panel conversation with Victoria Prue, CEO and co-founder of Her Collective, and Sophie Slater from Birdsong London. I ask Victoria and Sophie what it's been like operating their innovative business models amid the backdrop of COVID-19 and whether a truly green and just recovery from the pandemic is possible, among other things, of course. So here's that discussion in full. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed sharing. Well, good afternoon to you both. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Though, as we were just chatting about before, I managed to get sunburnt, so... (laughs) <laughs> foolishness too excited in a march i know it's the we're all looking forward to lockdown lifting aren't we i feel like the sign of the sun is a sign of the end is near <laughs> yeah i, I think say was... that but it was super sunny last march i remember trying to get over the stress of, of furlough by just sitting in my garden um drinking lots of fruit juice and reading lots of books 
yeah I'd like to be doing that now I'm not joking I'm not you know <laughs> I'm not gonna lie that sounds quite nice right about now <laughs> It, it sure does and I'm, I'm so happy to have you both here for this panel um, about fashion um, revolution week and obviously I think I've spoken to you directly before Sophie um, and Victoria I've been a, a bit of an Instagram fangirl for, for her for several months um, <laughs> but for the benefit of people at home that might not know the brands I guess it would be great to start out with a little bit of information on, on the brands and how they were set up so perhaps if I could start with, with Sophie on this one about Birdsong. Yeah, sure. We had a bit of an unconventional start. So we're a social enterprise, which means um, our core mission is people and planet over profit. So we work with community organisations, little micro businesses and charities in our supply chain. And I was actually working in the women's sector a lot, um, which obviously very, I don't know, it's always very relevant, but especially with the conversations that have been going on in the past few weeks. And yeah, loads of women's organisations have had their funding cut over the past 11 years. And we knew there was a lot of really talented um, women accessing these organisations who have these fantastic skills that the fashion industry kind of lament is not homegrown to Britain anymore, but can't access market um, to the fashion industry because it's such a kind of disconnected industry mm. in the women's sector. So we kind of acted as an intermediary and we've got a designer who designs everything in-house and then she works with women facing barriers to employment, small businesses, as we said, our warehouse who work with adults with learning disabilities who pack and post everything and older women as well who've been knitting and crocheting some of our products um, whilst in isolation in lockdown. Fabulous. And Victoria, could we hear a little bit more, um, bit more about her and what, what led you to, to set that up? Of course. Well, Sophie, I'm such a fangirl of, of Birdsong. You've got the most beautiful pink fuchsia maxi dress that I've got my eye on for, for June 21st. But um, I'm Victoria, the CEO and co-founder of a company based in London called Her. Um, we're basically a fashion rental marketplace trying to change the way we wear. So we really believe that single use outfits shouldn't exist. And we want to try and extend the lifespan of clothes. So we are predominantly a tech first business. So we have users all across the UK who rent and lend their wardrobes. So people are actually making you know, hundreds of pounds if not thousands of pounds sharing their wardrobes every month with within the her community and then on the renting side you can rent uh, amazing contemporary and luxury fashion for a fraction of the retail price so a 500 pound dress might be yours for four or eight days for say 50 or 60 pounds um, which is really exciting and then over the last year obviously we've we've been pivoting quite a lot and working out how we're going to get through lockdown and we realized we can really start solving a problem for brands directly so we now power the fashion rental platforms for 65 plus brands in the UK. So um, brands you probably heard, Nanushka, Bash, the French retailer. And we're also the in-house rental partner for Selfridges, which is a really big shift, I think, in the industry. And the first big department store or brand to say, hey, renting is the future. So it's a really exciting space to be to be pioneering and to be and to be in for sure. Mm. And Victoria, you mentioned a buzzword there, pivot. Um, I would like to have a pound for every time I've heard the word pivot over the past year. Um, and I'd like to ask about how COVID-19 has affected both of, of um, your brands. So, so sort of pre-lockdown, everyone was talking about a rental revolution. And then all of a sudden overnight, um, as you say, things like weddings and premiere events, things you might rent, yeah, that £500 dress for. Um, just stopped and um, we all seem to start wearing tracksuits a lot more um, so what what has COVID been like um, for for rental? 
Yeah, absolutely. So pre-COVID, there was nothing stopping us. We were growing at a really, really fast pace. It was all very exciting. Um, obviously, going back to March last year, um, the demand side of our platform, exactly like you said, was was really heavily impacted for the simple reason that people didn't have events to go to. Um, so we had, uh, let's just say, our cancellation policy works well now. Um, I think the good news is, obviously, the demand side took a, took a heavy impact, but the supply side, so actually getting people to list their clothes on her or to, to build market leading supply and kind of win over the, these brands to join her was where we really, really focused our energy and efforts and had some amazing wins and continue to do so in the space. Um, I also think it's important to note on, on rental um, consumers generally look at rental or resale at times of economic instability or when things are a bit volatile. And what we actually saw over the last 12 months is a real shift. I'm sure all three of us would agree there's been, you know, five years work of, 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 of kind of conversation around sustainable fashion basically done in a 365 day period for, for the simple reason that people haven't had a reason to leave their home um, and we're all hopefully going to be doing things differently post lockdown so it's been a time absolutely pivot is the word for 2020 um, but also on the flip side engagement across the platform was at an all-time high we grew our user base by 850 percent so engagement in the idea and the concept has never been stronger so I feel super hopeful for, for when June 21st does come around and, and, and the subsequent months, because I really think that, that consumers are starting to wake up and, and, and that is really exciting. Great. Well, Victoria, I'm sure we can touch on some of that in a bit more detail. But Sophie, I'd like to hear about yeah what it's been like at Birdsong during COVID, because I understand that there there was a pause and obviously there are challenges at getting, you know, groups, groups of sewers or knitters or crocheters in, in one room at the moment. Absolutely. I think it's been, yeah, quite the year. And I totally agree. Um, yeah, about the kind of conversation of sustainability progressing. I think it's really interesting seeing, you know, what the public conversation is around. And I think when we first started in 2014, a lot of it was around body positivity and representation. And then sustainability became the massive buzzword. And we've been waiting. All those things are super important. But I think ethics came into it massively as well. And we saw with the pay up campaign, and, um, you know, the fact that there was widespread media coverage of factory workers in Leicester being paid £3.50 an hour. This is something you know we've known about and the government have known about because of the Fixing Fashion Report for years now. But I think public consciousness really caught up with state of the fashion industry, even in the UK, with sweatshop labour. So it was really interesting, actually. We decided to go to a made-to-order model last March, just before the pandemic. And we just launched our new collection and we were like really worried that people maybe wouldn't want to wait two weeks for their item to be made. And then they ended up waiting five months because um, basically because we work with quite marginalised communities a lot. I don't know if you read the Bain COVID report, but Bengali populations in particular are twice as likely to have like a have twice the mortality rate as the kind right. of population, um, which makes up a lot of our seamstresses. Um, and then also our warehouse, because it's a lot of people with disabilities, they have pre-existing conditions. And obviously our knitters were shielding as well, because they tend to be a lot older. Um, so, yeah, we've had kind of adapted our product range, things like masks. Um, our really talented seamstresses could make at home, which was fantastic. And we got a lot of public support for that. Some of the crochet items could be done from home. And it was nice to have that contact with our designer, Susanna, I think, for the makers that way. And then because we're lucky that because we work with charities, there's a lot of holistic support for our makers available, whether through 
you know the charity that we're working with or our production manager Susanna it's not like putting in a tech packet at a factory it's like having a really nice phone call and checking in on how you are and how your family are doing you know it's 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 quite a different relationship to a standard kind of brand um but yeah we had to pause everything pretty much for three months our embroiderer was stranded um abroad so we did like a little hardship fundraiser and got her back um safe and sound and then she could make t-shirts like embroider our t-shirts quite safely in isolation but it's interesting despite all those setbacks and me myself and Suzanne my co-founder furloughing ourselves for three months we have actually had the best year on record because the conversation around sustainability and ethics has evolved so much mm-hmm. um yeah still growing and doing really well actually now that everything is kind of gradually coming back and our seamstresses are back but in a really kind of minimal socially distanced way but I think the made to order thing was just kind of perfect for us because it meant we weren't sitting on loads of inventory come the lockdown and also um yeah it's just better in terms of like waste management and um people are really patient now I think after a year of waiting in the house for the I think like now you know when we go back to normal and people have to wait two weeks for a dress I feel like that will feel like no time um so yeah we're, we're feeling enthusiastic and none of our makers um got seriously ill so that's the most important thing for us you know that's that's the bottom line really for this year of course well glad you both have such good news um at, at this moment in time and you've both mentioned something I wanted to come on to which is a way in which the sustainable fashion conversation has changed so you both talked about how there's more awareness of ethics I think that's the same in a lot of sectors we've just seen questions about supply chains and supply and worker protection um just because of yeah the physical practicalities of the the pandemic um but then if you say you say cultures changed as well so people are more likely to wait for um made to order or more likely to consider rental or even renting out their own um things but at the same time i've been seeing headlines about you know how well these online only big fast fashion groups are are doing so i wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about how much you think the conversation has really changed and whether there is a, a duality here yeah I think people will still go for kind of convenience and ease and price and they're also you know these brands have such huge budgets I think it's still very like tantalizing and something we've been kind of working on um I've been talking with Fashion Roundtable quite a lot and trying to come up with kind of government incentives to brands to run things more sustainably and more ethically because at the minute you know there is no incentive to do that really unless unless you've got good morals (laughs) like um you know I think especially with Brexit like smaller brands like myself have definitely been hit with that as well like the, we had some customs charges kind of complications early on in January um, and then also you've got kind of the conversation around around the Uyghur kind of crisis and you know potential genocide that taints one in five cotton products globally so I think there's a lot that government could be doing in terms of like um acting more and you know incentivizing fashion brands to do the right thing and I think fashion's always been behind food but I think you know in food we definitely had that kind of Jamie Oliver moment of being like oh this is what's in our like food it's not good for us um I think fashion's moment is coming but unfortunately while wages are stagnant um fast fashion is going to seem like the more affordable option even if it's not in the long term because it it doesn't last as long so Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Sophie, I've been following those policy recommendations by the EAC and obviously they're, they're redoing thinking fashion and we're in the process of looking at resource and waste strategy um, and at new trade deals. And one of the recommendations that EAC keeps flagging is like VAT breaks for businesses that do circular business models like rentals or, or repair. So, Victoria, I don't know if you've been looking at, at, the, at the policy piece or want to want to add to what Sophie said there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was in some of the fashion roundtable discussions. Uh, I feel like VAT breaks on circular economy businesses is frankly the uh, the, the first step. It's a good step. And, and I think that's an obvious win. Um, I think our stance on the kind of, you know, going back to your question about, you know, fast fashion and I, 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 a conversation we have a lot is whose responsibility is this? Is it a governmental level? Is it a consumer level or is it a business level? And and my gut says, whilst there is some process, progress in terms of trying to lobby government, we can't wait. We know how how serious this is from a fashion waste point of view, and actually, we need change now. And and we can we can get change from a consumer level and a business level. So I think my personal stance on it, and what I hope that her can achieve, is is a rental model that is as fast as fast fashion, without obviously having to to purchase a product. And I think that's where we can get change. Our, our personal in house data, when when we run surveys on this, shows that very frequently consumers. Who, who buy fast fashion, buy it because of, as Sophie mentioned, it's convenient, it's low cost, they're not really thinking about kind of environmental impact, but actually they are now, people are really starting and, and, and actually people feel a level of guilt associated with purchasing fast fashion in terms of this is obviously our, our her data, but I think it's an interesting point, but there's no alternative. So, so the, the feedback from consumers is, I, I want a new dress for 20, June 21st, but you know, I haven't got time to find new brands or I don't know where, where to go. So they don't know that you can buy a great dress on Depop for you know half the price of a fast fashion dress. They might not have heard of Birdsong yet. They might have never tr tried renting yet. So it's that that level of options that the consumer doesn't have yet, which is where I think the work needs to be done. It needs to be said, OK, if you're going to look at a dress, why not consider X, Y, Z? And that's that's where I think you need, you need a three pronged attack. Right. We need to be going after the government and making it financially viable for us to be all running and putting in the hard work. But we also need a level of accountability for the brands and then the end consumer, because at the end of the day, the consumer votes with their pound, right? That That's my view. And I think the more we can be doing to get that consumer to spend £30 renting a dress rather than buying a fast fashion one that they might wear once or twice and never again, that's where I think the change needs to come um, for sure. It's interesting though because I'm super interested in sustainable fashion and even I think there's just so much information out there. I don't think it's a case of that the information isn't out there. Or it's a sort of question of where do you start and what what yeah. route do you take for a lot for a lot of people. I agree, and I think there's so much confusion. What is sustainability? What what, what does the word conscious consumption mean? You know, we're all in this space, and I still find it confusing to navigate. So, what does the consumer that wants to do things better? How how are they feeling? And I think that the the kind of easier and the clearer we can hammer the home the message around sustainable fashion, just loving our clothes for longer. If you are buying that fast fashion outfit, are you going to wear it 30 times? There are so many simple messages I think we can get across, but we're we're completely right, Sarah. It's this element of just confusion and greenwashing and am I doing the right thing and and it's it's hard to navigate at the moment mm. and we've talked a little bit there about guilt and about consumer behavior but we we produce this podcast and our content as well for sustainability professionals or people like yourselves who are working um, high up at purpose-led 
sustainable um, brands. So I think it'd be great to wrap up with some some sort of calls to action on what the focus should be for these professionals, um, this fashion revolution week and beyond. I think we've come up with some good topics as a starting point, including um, policy lobbying and and engagement. Um, but yeah, I'd love to see if you have anything to to add on that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I really think that from the perspective of someone who's kind of run a small brand outside of the fashion industry almost um, because of my kind of unconventional path into fashion I think I would like to see more action from governments and more lobbying I think consumer awareness is super important but I think you know it's also tied to stagnant wages and unfortunately our clothes aren't affordable for the general population because of stagnant wages and that's why also we're seeing you know government workers getting paid £3.50 an hour um, I think, you know, we need to campaign for living wages for all and then that will kind of um, feed into people being able to spend more on decent priced, decent quality items. Um, so, yeah, I see it as part of like a larger kind of spectrum of what we need to do politically to rebuild after COVID. Mm. So a real like ethics focused, levelling up focused um, conversation. Great. And how about yourself, Victoria? Yeah, I, I agree. I think in terms of the, the sustainability professionals or people that, that are decision makers listening to this, um, I, I think there's a big change um, uh, that needs to take place where you're taking, we're seeing a lot of circular economy businesses or ethical brands being spotlighted, but but it's on a pilot basis. And we need to get sustainable fashion and the circular economy beyond that pilot phase into the long term strategy and business of these big businesses that have the, the budgets to do things differently. So if I take the the example of Selfridges say they piloted us in store as a pop-up it worked extremely well we're now part of their you know long-term business business uh, growth and, and they subsequently rolled out their own rental platform through us and I think there needs to be a big shift a lot of businesses exist because they, they they are for profit and the businesses that are for profit need to be shown that resale and rental are, are viable revenue streams and actually they're not a tick box CSR they're not doing this for a good a bit of good press they they can actually make you know you know viable revenue streams through that so I think it's two-pronged for me I think first is like how can we get amazing businesses like Birdsong in front of everyone so that people get this message of investing in quality over quantity and the second is can we take circular business models from a pilot into a long-term revenue driving part of any of any fashion business out there. Great. And so much food for thought there. I honestly could stay and do this all, all day, but um, that's all the time we have for today. So thank you both so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having thank us. You so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Victoria and Sophie for their time. And it was great there to cover some of the topics that often get avoided in the typical sustainable fashion conversation. So questions of scale and of true support for garment workers, for example. Can a brand ever be sustainable if you go on its website and it's stocking upwards of 12,000 dresses alone? Are minimum wage commitments enough if you put your garment workers in locations without strong legislation? Lots of food for thought, and of course, personally, I'd say no, of course not, to those previous questions. As we have two more guests for this episode, I'm going to swiftly wrap up part one. Join me in part two to learn about why the shoe industry is harming the planet, supply chain workers, and even our own well-being as consumers – and how we can innovate and collaborate to solve these big challenges.
and a very warm welcome back to part two of Edie's Sustainable Business Cover podcast, Fashion Revolution Week Edition for 2021. After looking at innovative business models in women's wear in part one, we're now putting our best foot forward, so to speak, and looking at sustainable footwear. Did you know that shoes are one of the fashion sector's biggest waste problems? More than 20 billion new pairs are made each year, and again each year, 300 million pairs get sent to landfill or incineration, or they're just simply dumped. Many of these pairs of shoes contain synthetic materials that will linger for upwards of a thousand years. The Better Shoe Foundation also puts reuse rates in the UK, for example, at just 15%, with recycling rates being far lower due to a lack of mechanical and chemical infrastructure. This is before we even come on to the carbon impact of this trend, or the human impact of shoes across the value chain. To help me dive deeper into these problems and the potential solutions, I reached out to two footwear brands which pride themselves on sustainability, Vivo Barefoot and Third Mind, and I managed to get some time in with both of the founders. First up, I'm going to play the talk with Vivo Barefoot's co-founder and CEO, Galahad Clark. He provides a rundown of the challenges and successes of scaling up a sustainable shoe business since 2015, a period of time where the sustainability conversation has undeniably shifted dramatically. He also lays out the intersections between the well-being of the planet, supply chain workers and product users. So without further ado, here is that talk in full. Well, good morning. It's a delight to have you on the podcast. How are you this morning? Thanks. Yeah, wonderful. It's a beautiful day down in Devon here, so uh, happy to be talking to you. Yeah, nice here in Sussex too, but admittedly I'm, I'm jealous. Devon always looks so gorgeous on the TV. Um, so yes, thank you for taking the time to join our podcast on Fashion Revolution Week. Um, and I think it'd be great to start with, I obviously know all about Vivo Barefoot, but for those that might not know about the brand, can you tell us a little bit about the brand and why you felt compelled to help set it up? Yeah, well, um, I come from a long line of cobblers um, in Somerset and I was playing around with um, some little shoemaking projects um, back in the day. And it was a childhood friend of mine uh, that came to me with the idea of making barefoot shoes, which is one of the great oxymorons, along with sort of ethical business, (laughs) fashion and things like that. Um, and he literally cut the sole off a pair of old Nikes and stitched on a tennis racket cover kind of on the bottom to make this sort of awesome hybrid moccasin type thing. And um, I just instinctively loved the idea. We set about making prototypes that were shoe shaped and most importantly allowed your feet to feel the ground and give information to your brain. And, you know, it took us a while to get the shoes right. But once we got them out into the market, the response was incredible. And we were sort of almost biblical responses. Um, so and and so, so slowly, slowly, I just learned more and more about it. I sort of educated myself around the way feet work. And I was already on a sustainability journey. Um, and it was in many ways through sustainability and a guy called John Ehrenfeld, who said, look, you know, the only excuse for filling the world up with more stuff is if products um, help you connect more to nature and or make you feel more human and or answer some important environmental and ethical questions. And I realised that the only shoes that I was involved in or making that even ticked any of those boxes in many ways were barefoot shoes that really allow the foot to do its natural thing. So as in 2012, I dropped everything else I was doing to really focus everything on building Vivo Barefoot as a standalone brand. And, um, you know, here we are today. We want to inspire a world with more feeling and less padding. 
and we make shoes that literally connect you closer to nature um, and in this funny world we live in try to put on more experiences as well mm. yeah if it only takes a quick google to be sure that it's not a case of just prototyping some moccasins with an old nike sole anymore there was a great interview that i found this morning saying yes i think we could take on nike and adidas um, so I'd like to hear a bit more about how the brand has grown since 2012. And I know that recently you got B Corp accreditation as well as part of that process. So it'd be great to hear a little bit more about the journey. Yeah, it's been a, a steady journey. We started off um, and I think within the, when we when we launched Viva as a standalone brand, we almost immediately went spectacularly bankrupt um, within the first year, precipitated because we knew about some research coming out of Harvard University and it was the same lab and same professor who'd done a bit of research a couple of years earlier and it had been on 300 front pages all around the world and we we thought this research was even more powerful and even a bigger cat amongst the existing shoe pigeons um, and so we sort of you know called up the factories and ordered more stock and had 60 minutes and panorama all ready to go to kind of unveil the truth of what a terror the world shoe industry was on people's feet and the environment and of course you know it didn't nothing you know it, it got sort of watered down in peer review and so in the end nothing happened so we we started it took us I would say two or three years almost to recover from you know what was a desperate survival mode um after after we made more shoes than we could sell and um you know the impact of barefoot on the world was uh you know um, a lot less than we we anticipated shall we say and the whole shoe industry actually went quite maximalist and started making sort of fatter and fatter soles and sort of the opposite to barefoot so everyone was kind of laughing us out of town for a couple of years um, and it was really probably um, I would say three or four years ago that the, the ship really steadied and we doubled in the last two years from about 20 million to about 40 million um, and we're you know on, a, on an exciting up but I would say steady growth trajectory where we have rather more demand than supply these days which is a good and a bad thing you know we just got a, a bunch of shoes stuck in the Suez Canal. Um, so we're, um, yeah, the, the journey of the brand is, is now just, it's, it feels steady and consistent rather than um, anything um, uh, you, you hear about with sort of software companies going um, stratospheric. Right, um, completely understandable. And one of the most exciting parts in that journey for me was, was last year, I saw that the brand launched an online resale platform for repairing and returning shoes and you mentioned that that you have a long line of working in in that sort of business so I'd love to hear a little bit more about the process of developing that service. It's something we wanted to do for a long time and the the ultimate dream of that we call it Revivo and so we basically resell refurbished and repaired old, old Vivos and, and, the, and the ultimate dream of what we're trying to, what we'd love to do is to Revivo people's favorite shoes um, and we're not quite there yet honestly but we'd like to people to be able to bring in their whatever their favorite shoe is and we can barefoot it up so they get their kind of favorite look but they get the barefoot feeling and benefits um but yeah no revivo has been surpassed our wildest imaginations in many ways we've it took us a long time to find the right partner 
And we worked with an incredible company called the Boot Repair Company in Leeds, who, you know, this would not be even vaguely possible without them. It's very, very much a partnership and their brilliance is, you know, is, is really meaningful. Um, and I think we've now repaired um, 27,000 pairs of shoes. Um, and I think we've sold maybe 15,000 pairs of, of those sort of repaired and refurbished shoes. So it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a, becoming a meaningful part of what we do. And we aim to build on that with rental models and um, bespoke repair services. And then ultimately, like I said, to be able to, you can send in your favorite pair of shoes and we'll send you back your your favourite look, but they'll feel wonderful. Mm. And you mentioned there the importance of collaboration and how having this like super personalised, super bespoke service um, might help. But for those listening that might be looking into this kind of business model, do you have any other pieces of, of advice and pearls of wisdom? I think that the, the um, mass bespoke business model is, is an important one and, and, and ultimately a sustainable one. Um, you know, I, I think I'll David Attenborough, which everyone likes to quote these days, said, you know, 10,000 years ago, humans lived sustainably because there was no other choice. And 10,000 years later, you know, we have to live sustainably again because there is no other choice. And I think what that means in footwear, um, if you look at the way humans made shoes 10,000 years ago, they made them foot by foot, person by person from the local sustainable materials. And we find ourselves in the you know uh, end of the 20th century with long production lines filling up shoes, that, uh, making literally 22 billion pairs of shoes a year. Most of them don't fit. Most of them are unhealthy, end up in warehouses on horrible Black Friday sales and whatever, which is obviously completely unsustainable. And so I think, you know, ultimately going back to a place where we're making shoes person by person, foot by foot, um, is, is where we need to go back to. And the, the, these giant factories filling up warehouses full of shoes is just not sustainable. And if people start to have an intimate experience and, and really love and cherish the shoes they're wearing, they may be made from local sustainable materials, then, um, you know, that, that would point a future to a more sustainable shoe industry. And obviously in the modern times we can use modern technologies like 3d printing to help us achieve that where and, and achieve a local manufacturer and making that was never maybe possible uh, before so i think 10,000 years later we're going to go back to making shoes like we always did which is person by person foot by foot and people really you know have a meaningful experience with the footwear rather than just buying whatever it is and then throwing it away when they get a bit bored of it Mm. No, I've definitely heard a lot about that emotional durability as well as obviously the physical durability being being important for keeping things in circulation. 100%. I love that. Great. And as, as well as that sort of circular model, so using less materials, better materials, keeping them in circulation, I know the company has a commitment to become a regenerative um, business as, as well. So what else does that mean other than other than this materials piece? I think that at the heart of becoming a regenerative business is is um, the, the people in the organisation really understanding and acting in a more regenerative way. Um, ultimately, businesses are groups of people doing things, and you know our our little group of people obviously try to make shoes and sell them to nice people all around the world. Um, and so we're, we're spending a lot of time and energy. Um, educating our organization around 
what regeneration means, how to be regenerative in everything that we do, rather than sort of it just be a department within the organisation. So we, we spend a lot of time working with a guy called Giles Hutchins and his partner, Laura Storm, who have something called regenerative leadership. So the whole company, and we've been obviously a bit thwarted by the recent lockdowns and things, but spending time out in the woods, out in nature, adopting this regenerative leadership mindset. And so when I think when you set all that edu- education and experience alive in people, then just it sets up all kinds of wonderful uh, regenerative action through the whole business. And, you know, not just in how we make the shoes, but um, every other part of the supply chain, but then also how we interact with one another and what we end up doing with maybe excess profits, how we do marketing, how we do selling. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's never, it, it, it needs to be the, the whole piece as it were, rather than just one or two things, the type of products you're making. That's so interesting. A lot of the times I see regenerative and it's purely about the nature in the supply chains, but it sounds here like there's pieces around people, plain and simple. So sort of social regeneration as well. Yeah, when people get educated, obviously regenerative agriculture is is the obvious thing around regeneration, but it's so much more than that. Yes, thank you once more to Galahad for his time. With Vivo Barefoot's Sustainability Manager, Charlotte Pumford, being a member of ED's 30 Under 30, I'm sure we're going to hear lots more from them in the near future. For our next guest, we are staying firmly on the topic of footwear, but this time shifting to more formal shoes and going stateside. Our final guest speaker is Third Minds founder, Steve Hamill. After a long career in the military and then in the mainstream footwear sector, Steve realised that change was desperately needed. In terms of both the types of shoes available to men and their quality and durability, as well as the sustainability credentials of materials and manufacturing. In this talk, he tells the story of the brand's founding and provides best practice learnings on engaging with suppliers and designers to implement better processes and materials in a way that improves social sustainability too. So let's hear that talk with Steve in full. Well, good good afternoon for me, but good morning for you, I guess, Steve. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's it's uh, working through the time differences is a challenge sometimes, but fortunately we're able to work it out. Great. Well, thank you for taking the time so early in the morning to come on the podcast. I personally would hate to be podcasting at 7.30 in the morning. Um, I understand it's your first time on the podcast. So I guess for the benefit of both myself and listeners that might not be aware of yourself and the brand, um, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about it. So specifically what it does and how, when and why you decided to help set it up. Yeah, it, it's it was uh, going back a few years. Um, I, I, I was living in China and I realized that my son was in all likelihood autistic and I decided to put together a plan to move back to the US for his educational reasons. So I I started out I I told the owner of the company I was working with that I was going to be planning on moving to the states and she looked at me and she said uh, Jenny Kyung is her name and she said, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I said, "You know, I I really want to start my own brand." And she said, "Well, that's fantastic. I'd like to support you in doing so. And and if you need an investor, I'd be more than happy to invest. She said, I believe in your ability and I really respect the reasons that you're making this decision. 
So that got the ball rolling. And, and then all of a sudden I said, oh, my goodness, I don't have a brand name and I don't even know what product I'm going to go after. And I always been intrigued with the relationship between designers and engineers. And the footwear business is, is, is very unique in that regards because you have to have the coming together of design and engineering in order to create a wonderful product. It's, it's, it's very unique and it's, it's all developed around a 3D thing called the last. And um, I was looking for names similar to what Disney uses for Imagineering, for instance, and I couldn't come up with anything that was either not taken or whatever, but I stumbled upon a quote from Napoleon Hill, one of the first self-help authors in the United States back in the 1930s, and it's and he said, no two minds ever come together without thereby creating invisible and tangible force that can be equated to a third mind. And that's how I came up with the name. And then I started trying to figure out what kind of product I was going to work on. And I, I really wanted to solve a problem. And one of the things that every person that I've come across or every man that I've come across always has complaints about is dress shoes. And, and dress shoes are the most uncomfortable shoes that they that they that exist. So I said to myself, I said, well, I'm going to set out the goal of doing not only a sustainable dress shoe, but one that is as comfortable and performs like your favorite running shoes. And when I started, I honestly didn't know if I would be able to accomplish that goal. A lot of experiments. My team was constantly coming up with different challenges that we had to overcome. Um, but the amazing thing is, is the product speaks for itself. Uh, it, it's it performs like running shoes. Your feet do not get fatigued at all. But the best part about it is when we did the drill down, we found we're able to use materials that are 100 percent recycled, especially fabrics. We're able to use performance materials that are produced in a solvent-free atmosphere. They save 70% of water, and, and that in particular, that's the Clarino from Japan. And, you know, and, I, and I, I think also the best part about it is the community that we have um, at our manufacturing facility in China. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it's making the efforts to use water-based glues. And, and, and it was an interesting journey because the workers were originally reluctant to embrace water-based glues. They're different to work with. They're not as, they're, they're, they're not as compliant. Uh, the water-based glues take longer to dry and, and, and everything like that. And there was, a, there was somewhat of resistance. And then I just looked at them and I said, yeah, but you know what? If we use water-based glues, we can turn the air conditioner on in the summer. And they just kind of, wow, okay, well, yeah, sure. So it, it's sometimes appealing to workers and, and, and their own general well-being is not good enough. But if you can make them feel good while doing it, then, then they embrace it. So we were able to do that with water-based glues and, and uh, it, 
that's the background. That's the that's how we came up with the brand name, and and uh, and we identified a problem that needed to be solved, and we we're able to solve it, and we we're able to do so in a in a very responsible and sustainable way. Because mm, obviously you've identified a problem there with the performance and the comfort of the shoe, but obviously we all know that the shoe industry is really high waste, really non-circular, um, especially problems with all these different materials. And as you say, the, the glue that holds them all together is, presents a big problem for recycling um, as well. So you, you've gone over some of the learnings there about implementing these new, more sustainable um, glues, but I've got so much info here about these recycled and otherwise innovative materials that are used in the other components. Um, so I'd love to hear some more learning. So for listeners that might be looking at their own material innovation um, or some some design innovation as well. Well, it's it's um, one of the uh, you know reducing waste is is uh, the technology is definitely there. Sometimes it takes a little more upfront investment. Um, but that's one of the reasons why we decided to go with knitted uppers. And uh, by knitting the upper, you're reducing the weight a great deal because you don't have these massive rolls of fabric in which you're die cutting. And then you have to figure out how you're going to take care of the waste from that die cutting. And, and in addition to that, um, you know, using injection molded EVA um, as as part of the process of making the EVA basically eliminates waste with the exception of some a little bit of flashing um, and and uh, you know I, I think waste reduction is a very very important part of it and taking care of waste is getting more and more costly as well. Great. And we're seeing a lot of these innovative materials maybe being used on a pilot basis, but I know for you guys, it makes up a big part of the material portfolio. So I wondered as well whether you have learnings on uptaking materials at, at scale while maintaining, as you say, that product performance too. Uh, yeah, fortunately, the, the, you know, using recycled polyesters is, is uh, pretty mature. It's not onerously expensive. It is a little bit more expensive, but I think it's the the most important thing is exercising the discipline to follow through on it. Do the drill down of what is the source of the polyester threads, and making sure that it's actually recycled, and and uh, and then going from there. You know, there were some things that were the recycled threads were not quite as color fast and we had to do some experiments with that to be able to hold their color better and 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 things like that but it but really i think the the most surprising thing for me is that actually how easy it was it was just exercising the discipline to pay attention and if, if there's if there's one message there i think it it, it is you know, being determined to exercise the discipline to pay attention. Fantastic. That makes complete sense. Um, and I wanted to come over. We've talked there a lot about the the upstream part. So the design, the engineering, as you say, the pro the production. Um, but obviously, this is just one part of the, the value chain for fashion and one part of the the challenge. So I wanted to ask about what you're doing to make sure that the shoes have a good long product life and a sustainable end of life stage, too. You know, I, one thing that I wanted to do was make sure 
the best way to ensure a long product life is to guarantee it to the consumer. And, um, you know, I, I have a 365-day warranty within, a, within one year. If, if, if a consumer is not satisfied with the product, then um, they return it for a free pair. Uh, it, it's, it's that simple. Um, and, you know, when, when I decided to do that, it got my entire team thinking about, well, okay, well, we've got to prevent these problems because the last thing we want to do is, is, is have a high rate of returns. And, and uh, you know, I'm very proud to say that we launched, we did a soft launch last July, but I've not had one pair return for quality reasons. And, and uh, workmanship and getting the workers involved in the workmanship point of view is also important. Um, another thing that we did to allow the shoes to keep their form better is we designed and developed a pretty innovative shoe tree that goes into each pair of shoes that is made from 100% recycled plastic. So that it helps preserve the shoes for a longer period of time. And I've done a lot of experiments with them as well. Um, you know, unlike leather shoes that tend to get scuffed up and scratched. And then, you know, if you've got a scratch on the toe or something, it, it's really difficult to continue wearing them in a, in a, in a dress environment. Um, but with ours, there is none of that. They don't get scuffed up. They don't get scratched. And I've actually gone out and, and uh, gotten them pretty dirty. And the amazing thing is, is you just take a brush and brush them off and they look just like new. And Steve, I'm aware that we're running short on time for our podcast meeting, but I did want to just touch on, you've touched on so many important um, questions there. So about how to engage staff, about how to design better and how to improve product lifecycle. And all of this is obviously um, baked into the brand. But I wanted to um, I wanted to get your views on, as this is a podcast for Fashion Revolution Week, um, what some of the focus areas for brands like yours and and others um, this year in the context of 2021, which, as we are seeing, is shaping up to be like 2020, another unique year? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, for for Fashion Week, I think I, I think that it's it's really an important time to reflect on on the origins of how Fashion Week came about. I mean, 1100 people died in a building collapse um in in bangladesh and and that is just that sullies the entire fashion industry and i don't know how to educate the consumer about trying to figure out of where their product was made and who made it um that is 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 a message that i think unfortunately for a lot of people especially lower income people is they don't they're just trying to survive and trying to figure out those things is too complicated for them. Um, but I think as manufacturers, the best thing that we can do is look at the people that work for us as family and, and uh, you know, get to know them and try to understand what they're looking for and, and do your best to provide that to them. And, you know, we are definitely going to have 
a statement of, about Fashion Week, but if you look at our website, got photos of people that work for us at our factory in China, and you know, I would certainly open up anybody to interviews or or whatever. You know, I think all in all, we've all got to be responsible human beings, and that and and being responsible to our communities and being responsible to our people is paramount. Great. Well, that's a fantastic note to end on, Steve. Thank you so much for your time. Sure thing. And thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate it. And and uh, hopefully we can, uh, by the end of this summer, we'll all be able to get together in person one day. Thanks once again to Steve, our last guest for this episode. Of course, Fashion Revolution Week is now coming to a close by the time this episode is airing. But it's always a good time to ask brands who made your clothes, whether you're simply a shopper or whether you're working in the fashion sector already. Before we sign off, I want to take a really quick moment to flag Edie's next online events. This coming Thursday, the 29th of April, I'll be chairing our next online masterclass webinar on the topic of low carbon heat. It's a 45 minute session hosted in association with Centrica Business Solutions, and you can find full details and sign up by visiting edie.net and clicking events, webinars and masterclasses in the top bar. Also, by following that pathway on our site, you can find more information about our upcoming engagement sessions, which are now less than two weeks away. These are three hour-long interactive online events taking place on the afternoon of May 6th. They're all dedicated to sustainability-related communications, engagements and reporting. We have a stellar lineup of expert speakers representing organisations including Virgin Media, Clear Channel and Toast Ale. So if you're helping your organisation supercharge its sustainability communications or ensuring best practice in reporting, this is one for you not to miss. Once again, you can access information and sign up for both events at ed.net, then click events, webinars and masterclasses. But until then, it's a goodbye from me and it's been a pleasure hosting this episode. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.